even though I can say I know what it's like to experience the release of three new Beatles songs, got to meet several heroes, and am now officially a world traveler, <laughs> still, I'm just a schnook. Hi everybody, welcome to episode 46 of Autobiography of a Schnook. I am the schnook in the title. And, uh, wow, it's been, I think, was it four months since my last episode? Probably longer. Well, I did say I was going on a hiatus for various reasons. Part of it was to restructure the podcast a little bit, which uh, there is a little bit of restructure, by the way. I'll get into that in a moment. Part of it was simply because of my busy schedule. Busy work schedule, busy summer schedule, busy life schedule. And this isn't the only podcast I do, at least at the moment. <laughs> and for the foreseeable future, it won't be. So this basically had to take a back seat to other things. But those of you who are new to this podcast, well, what's the point of it? I don't know. I really don't. I like to say that it's self-therapy to an extent. Because, well, this is very therapeutic for me to do this podcast you get to hear about the life of somebody that nobody's ever heard of because he's just an average schnook. I'm a Gen Xer living on the north side of Chicago, software engineer for a living, and for fun, I do lots of music stuff, and I like to play really old video games. I'm talking before the Nintendo Entertainment System. <laughs> and I even write code for fun on the side, too, so... uh yeah, my work is also my fun, go figure. And of course, podcasting. Speaking of which, I do plan to be launching a new podcast when the new year happens, so January 2024-ish. I'll tell more about that as it happens. Does this mean that autobiography of a schnook will be discontinued? No, no. I think at this point, the only thing that will definitely discontinue this podcast is simply my death, which I hope is not for a long, long time yet. But that's not up to me now, is it? <laughs> so one of the things that I have been doing lately <sighs> is for the first time in my life, I took an overseas flight. I left North America. I had been to Toronto a couple of times. My wife, Lisa, and I went there twice in 2011, and we loved it. We took a honeymoon cruise from New York to Bermuda in 2000. Loved it. But see what I mean there? We never left North America. And with uh, the really big severance check I got when I got laid off from my previous job last year, the bonus I got for my previous job after the new year happened, and the really nice tax return for the IRS. Lisa and I decided, this is it. We're going to start doing some international travel. We'd been wanting to go to London for a long time, so we did. We splurged on business class on United Airlines. Let me tell you something. Business class is really sweet. If you've never flown business class on an overseas flight, you're in a huge airplane. It's one of those airplanes where coach is uh, two seats, then an aisle, then three seats, then another aisle, and then two seats again. 
And in business class, you practically get a cubicle to yourself almost. Your seat reclines all the way, so you can basically turn it into a makeshift bed. There is an ottoman you can put your feet up on. And above the ottoman, there's a little shelf. And then there's a monitor that has your onboard entertainment system. You play video games on it. Uh, you can check your flight progress. You can watch TV. Lisa, for example, watched several episodes of Parks and Recreation during our flight. There's an electrical outlet where you can plug stuff in. They give you a memory foam cushion. They give you a pillow, a blanket, and supposedly one-size-fits-all slippers, assuming that that one size is size 9, which, spoiler alert, I am not. And it was pretty sweet. And one of the reasons that we did that was because... I had never been on a flight that lasted more than, say, five hours. I'm not afraid of flying at all. I love flying. I'm not afraid of heights, really. But I do get claustrophobic. So Lisa figured that, number one, because the flight from Chicago to London is eight hours, we'd better be comfortable. So we figured, better get business class. And also... Lisa looked at the lower classes uh, after she figured, well, we're not going to, I don't want to be stuck in economy for all that time. But the thing is, if you go with any other class, you might as well just go all the way and go with business class. So, yeah. But imagine the frequent flyer miles I'm getting with that thing, though. <laughs> but long story short, I loved it. It might be my favorite trip I ever took. London was amazing. It was so amazing. But I'm going to get to that in a little bit. But instead, right now, I'm going to talk about how I'm restructuring this podcast. Another reason I do this podcast, by the way, is that I love music a lot. And I wanted some kind of music podcast, but I didn't want to limit myself to just, say, the Beatles. Because, well, everybody does a Beatles podcast. I didn't want to limit myself to just one artist or one genre, so I figured I could use this as an opportunity to share my thoughts about any music topic that comes to mind. So I'll get to that a little later. That did not change. I still have that in this podcast, but the way this podcast is going to go, at least for now, there are going to be three main segments. The first one I'm going to call A Schnook's Thoughts. Because I get a lot of thoughts that I like to get out. And if I'm doing this show for self-therapy, it would help if I get these thoughts out. It could be deep, serious thoughts that roll in my mind at night sometimes. Thoughts that might scare me at times. Thoughts that might make me happy at times. Thoughts on the tangibles, the intangibles. Just thoughts. Next, a schnook's life. Stories from my life, things that happened to me, things that I've done. And of course, third, a schnook's music. Music that I love, music that I listen to, music that I sometimes I write. I'm going to try not to uh, make you listen to my singing voice. I did take a voice class recently, and I'm going to look into taking individual one-on-one -on -one voice lessons. In fact, when I called the Old Town School of Folk Music and uh, asked about signing up for voice lessons, the person on the phone said, well, what level are you at? I said, I don't know. 
she said, well, take a class first and then come back and see what we can do with you. And, uh, we'll put you with the right teacher and everything. So I said, okay, no problem. Cool. So I took the class and <laughs> they stuck me in a class. Well, it's not that they stuck me. It just happened to be what the enrollment was. It was all women plus myself. <laughs> and uh, I don't mind being in a class, being the only guy in class. But the problem with that is that when you have, say, 15 students and 14 of them are women, and only that one other student has the voice you're listening to now, they have to tailor the exercises, the songs that you practice with and everything to match the majority of the voices. So it was really tough. I liked everybody in the class, but man, it was tough trying to figure out what to do. So hopefully I'll get some practice under my belt and uh, maybe sound not so terrible if I ever have to present my own singing voice to all of you. Definitely can provide some instrumentals, that's for sure. <laughs> but in the meantime, what I'm going to do is start off with the first segment, A Schnook's Thoughts. Now, I'm not going to do what I usually do and use a musical transition to go in the first segment. I'm just going to go straight in this time. Now, these thoughts relate to my recent London vacation, and it's not scripted. I usually write out a script, or at the very least, bullet points. I kind of have bullet points here. But the thoughts that I have... And by the way, something else I should mention. People like lists, and count me among those who like lists. I like lists, too. So I'm thinking... With every episode, I should have at least one list, and that list will be in any segment. Could be in the A Schnook's Thoughts segment, it could be in A Schnook's Music, it could be in A Schnook's Life. This one, obviously, is going to be on A Schnook's Thoughts. And these thoughts are the things that surprised me about London. I figured it belongs in A Schnook's Thoughts because it's what I thought, as opposed to what I did or whatever. It might be a little bit of what I did too, but hey, let's consider this a Schnook's thoughts. For one thing, what surprised me was that the metric system is not as prevalent as I thought it would be. Here in the United States, we are notorious for clinging on to the old English imperial system. Rather than simply move the decimal point over and stick some zeros on a number, we'd rather multiply by 12 or divide by 5,280 and try to remember how many cups there are in a pint or something, or how many tablespoons there are in a cup, when if you use the metric system, all you have to do is multiply or divide by 10 a few times. But what shocked me was not everything is in metrics in London and probably the rest of England, I don't know. We were only in London. We did not leave London. We were going to take a train ride to Brighton on the last day of our trip. But right before that happened, there was a rail strike. And what went from being an hour train ride, we were told to expect it to be two hours. And we figured rather than blow four hours, we'll just do some more London stuff. But yeah, I mean, yeah, you'll the temperature for one thing, definitely in metrics. They use the centigrade system or Celsius as we call it. Now, I just have to say this. That is one, probably the only thing I don't like about the metric system is the Celsius temperature scale, because Fahrenheit is much more precise. 
Like going from, say, 27 degrees to 28 degrees Celsius, that's a huge difference to some people. Fahrenheit is a more gradual increase, much more gradual, so you can have a little bit better idea of what the temperature is going to be like. But it seemed weird knowing that, for example, when you're driving, which I did not, I let everybody else do the driving. We took Ubers, uh, a water taxi, and for me, once I took the tube, the underground. But speed is measured in miles per hour, not kilometers per hour. Yes, I say kilometers. I know a lot of people say kilometers. We were told in grade school, either way is acceptable. But why kilometers? Why is that one the one thing singled out? A thousand grams, is that a kilogram? No, it's a kilogram. A thousand liters, is that a kiloliter? No, it's a kiloliter. So, kilometer. <laughs> is one hundredth of a meter a centimeter? No, it's a centimeter. But anyway, that's something I noticed. I think the difference is that if you're talking about long distances, they'll give you the measurements in miles. If you're talking about, say, tabletop measurements, they'll give it to you based on meters, like centimeters, millimeters, meters, etc. Something else that surprised me. Now, people I've talked to who both are from the United Kingdom and from America who traveled to England many times over, told us to not expect to have ice anywhere. You get a drink, you're going to have it at room temperature. We found that to be not true at all. Everywhere we went, we had ice with our drinks. I'd say about 75% of the time, the ice was inside the drink itself, just like here in America. Other times, you'd get, say, a bottle of the drink along with a glass that had some ice in it. I don't know if it's maybe that the restaurant staff detected our American accents and told everybody, we got Americans here, better bring them some ice. Also, something else that surprised me. I was told by someone who actually lived in London for a long time to not expect a lot of courtesy from waitstaff in restaurants. And the way she was talking, it sounded like the further east in Europe you go the more unfriendly the waitstaff is. She was telling me how she was in Germany, and she and her friends were thinking, good grief, can you smile once in a while? <laughs> we actually found restaurant staff to be extremely friendly, very friendly, nice and chatty. Again, they it might be that, hey, these are Americans, let's be nice to them. I don't know. I don't know, but we found them to be very pleasant, very nice. And Americans listening to this, uh, the both of you were probably wondering, What's the tipping like? I'll tell you what it's like from what I gather. In restaurants, you don't tip if there's already a service charge on the bill. It'll usually be between, say, 10 and 12%. If there is no service charge on the bill, then you tip 10%, maybe a little more. If you're in a pub that is not really a restaurant, you don't tip. Of course, one well-known thing about England is... People drive on the wrong side of the street. Yes, I said it. The left side of the street is the wrong side of the street. I know they drive that way in Japan, but I'll tell you what was really surprising about that. It was very easy to get used to traffic being on the other side of the street. I was surprised at how easy that was to get used to. I didn't drive again, but it just, nothing felt weird about being on the left side while going ahead. It felt natural enough. What wasn't natural was seeing the driver on the right side of the car. 
that kind of, it, it, this really did freak me out once when Lisa and I were in an Uber, I think. And, uh, every Uber in cab that we rode in London was electric. We did not ride in a gas vehicle. Well, I know gas vehicles still exist in London because there are petrol stations charging the equivalent of about seven and a half dollars a gallon. So yeah, Americans who complain about high gas prices cry me a freaking river. Go to any other first world country and tell me how bad we have it with gas prices. And I know I'm a little bit prejudiced in that I had to fill our gas tank literally twice the entire summer. But still, getting back to the driver, yeah, we were at a red light. And because it's an electric car, you don't hear any idling or anything. And it felt like the car was turned off. And I looked up and there was nobody on the left side. And I said, where the hell's the driver? Oh, that's right. The driver's on the right side. <laughs> that that briefly freaked me out because I kept forgetting about that. It was really easy to get used to driving or being driven on the left side of the street. It just was not easy to get used to seeing the driver on the right side of the car. That was just weird. It's unnatural. <laughs> and speaking of being on the other side of the street, one thing that surprised me about at least London, I don't know if it's like this throughout all the UK, but in London it was, there does not seem to be an agreed side to walk on. Here in America, it's pretty much implicitly universally agreed that you walk on the right side. There's no such thing in London. People were walking any way they wanted to. <laughs> what I did see, though, because we did a lot of walking, so much walking that I literally need physical therapy in my left foot. But we did a lot of walking, and I did notice that on the ground outside, there were indications as to which direction to walk on which side. But they were different everywhere. And sometimes it literally changed in the middle of the path. Suddenly you had to switch sides. You had to go over instead of walking on the right. Now you have to walk on the left. I don't know why, but that's how it was. But generally, people did not really follow any particular pattern. And another side of the street thing that surprised me about London, it looks like it's normal to park facing either direction. As far as I know, in most places in America, you cannot park facing traffic. You have to park parallel to traffic. But in London, it was very common to see a car parked facing oncoming traffic. And I thought that was just weird because I know the reason that uh, it's illegal over here is that if you're parking facing traffic, that means you're going to be driving in the wrong direction for some time, whether it be just half a second or what. But I know it's not legal here. And going back to traffic again, what surprised me was how people cross intersections and how motorists treat intersections. Everywhere I've been in America, before you cross the street, even in a crosswalk, even at a red light, you look both ways. Make sure there's no traffic coming. And at least when I drive, when my wife drives, we wait until the pedestrians have finished crossing the street or have almost finished crossing the street. They don't do that in London. I don't know if they're supposed to and they just don't or if it's just that they just plain don't do it, period. But I've seen people in London just walk out in the intersection when there's still traffic going through it at a green light not caring that they're about to get mowed over by a car. And I've also watched drivers just not care. There are pedestrians there. If there's any kind of a gap, they will take it. That surprised me. It's, you got to be really, really careful in crossing the street in London. 
basically I've found that if you cross during a walk signal, you'll be fine. So just be careful with that. People are not going to necessarily give you the entire length of an intersection when you cross there. While I'm on the subject of street and traffic weirdness in London, well, let me just preface it by saying that when Lisa and I told people that we were going to London, we heard from several people, look right, meaning (laughs) make sure that when you're about to cross the street, you look to the right because they drive on the left side of the road, so they will be approaching from our right. The truth is, we did not need to keep that in mind for two reasons. For two reasons. Number one, it's actually literally painted on the roads. Look left or look right, depending on the situation. It actually says that on the roads themselves, on the surface of the street. So they didn't need to tell us that. I don't know if it's like that all throughout England or just Greater London. I really don't know. We didn't set foot outside of Greater London. So, And also, number two, we were both taught from an early age. One of the first things we could ever understand in English was always look both ways before you cross the street, which we both do, even on one-way streets, because you never know when some boob is going to be coming the wrong way. So yeah, we always look both ways anyway. So what surprised us was that people felt it was necessary to tell us, look right. Now, something that I had been told that's common lore, not only among UK residents, but people who visit the UK, there are two things that taste different and better in the United Kingdom, chocolate and Guinness. Apparently, the Guinness recipe is watered down over in America. While the beer is technically imported, I think it's either just the recipe itself that's imported or the ingredients themselves that are imported. I don't know, but it's not the actual finished product that's imported. I'm not much of a beer drinker, but I love Guinness on tap. If I'm at a restaurant or a bar or a pub or something where there is Guinness on tap, I'm going to have Guinness because I love it. I love it. And people told me, oh, it's going to be so much better in England. And a friend of mine who grew up in England and now lives in Glasgow told me that if you ever drink Guinness in Dublin, you'll never want to drink it anywhere else again because it's that much better there. But everybody said, yeah, Guinness is better in London. You'll like it better. and It's a little bit stronger. I didn't find that to be true at all. It tasted exactly the same to me as it does here. And I had it in three different pubs. It was still really good. I still loved it, but didn't taste any different to me. Same with the chocolate. I know people in England are probably hearing this and saying, you idiot, you are so dumb. I don't care. It didn't taste any different. In fact, um, a friend of mine who lived in London and was telling me about her experiences in Germany, she told me that especially Hershey's is a problem. She said, it tastes like in America. I always liked Hershey's. So when we were at a grocery store, I made it a point to grab different chocolate products to see how much better they were, including a Hershey's bar. Could not tell the difference. Lisa could. Lisa could. She took one bite out of a uh, Kit Kat, I think, and she said, oh my God, yeah, this is better. I couldn't tell the difference. I couldn't. I'm sorry. I couldn't tell. And speaking of candy bars... We found that if you go to a grocery store in London, again, I don't know if this is true throughout all of England, throughout all the United Kingdom or what, but it's definitely true in London. You go to a grocery store, there are candy bars everywhere in every single aisle. 
You go to the, I don't know, you go to the condiments aisle, you'll see ketchup, mustard, mayonnaise, marmite, uh, barbecue sauce, maybe. And then the rest of the aisle is chocolate bars. You go to the produce aisle, you'll see your bananas, your apples, your blueberries, and then a bunch of chocolate bars. The candy aisle has a bunch of chocolate. It's everywhere. (laughs) And Lisa and I had dinner with a couple of friends who live in England who always told us, if you ever get to England, please look us up. And we did. And we got together and had dinner. And we were talking about how shocked we were that there are candy bars. There's chocolate everywhere. And I said, is there a big diabetes problem in this country? And they said, oh, yeah. (laughs) Oh, the other thing that surprised me in England grocery stores, the eggs were not refrigerated. It was weird walking around grocery stores and there are eggs sitting out in the aisles. They're not in refrigerated cases. Just a couple of days before I'm recording this, I did a couple of uh, Google searches to see if I could find out why they do not refrigerate eggs over there. And it turns out there is a reason. Apparently, eggs as they naturally occur have a protective coating outside of the shell. In America, as the eggs are processed, that outer coating is actually removed, leaving you just the shell and the stuff inside the shell, the yolk, the whites. And uh, the shell is very porous. And because it is porous, it needs to be refrigerated or else it'll go bad really quickly. So that's why eggs are not in refrigerators in England. And they are here in the United States. And also something we learned when going through the grocery stores. Doritos are weird over there. <laughs> I forgot what they call Cool Ranch, um, but they're called something else. They're in the blue bag just like over here, but Cool Ranch is called something different over there. I don't remember what it was called off the top of my head. Actually, let me see. I have pictures. Yes, I took pictures of food in grocery stores. Maybe I should share them on uh, the online bibliography at schnookpodcast.com. Okay, here we go. Yeah, it's called Original Cool. That's what they call Cool Ranch over there. They also had tangy cheese in an orange bag, which I think is the equivalent to the regular nacho Doritos we have in the red bag in America. And what they have in the red bag in England is called Chili Heat Wave, C-H-I-L-L-I. There's also triple cheese pizza Doritos. They might have those here in America, but we rarely buy Doritos, so I don't know. But there was a bag of Doritos that sounded so disgusting and curious that Lisa actually got it just because she wanted to see what it was all about. Whopper Doritos. Yes, as in Burger King Whopper. Coated in stuff that's supposed to taste like a Burger King Whopper. I managed to get two of those chips down before I said, yeah, no, this is disgusting. (laughs) So, yeah, that's something else that surprised me about London. Doritos. (laughs) And also, on the line of groceries, Arizona. You know how here in America we have those tall boy Arizona drinks, like uh, ginseng and honey green tea. You can get what they call a golden bear, which is, uh, I believe it's a lemonade sweetened with honey, named after Jack Nicholas. Kind of like how you have tea sweetened with lemonade. They call that an Arnold Palmer. But yeah, they have those Arizona Tallboy cans, but you know how they're 99 cents here? It's actually printed on the can itself. It's not a label. Same deal in London. 
It said 99 cents on the cans. It didn't convert it to pence or anything. I don't know if that's how they're distributed over there or if maybe they were just brought over here. They were just exported here from somewhere. (laughs) But that's how it was. We thought that was just strange. And um, talking of food again, something that surprised me personally. I don't know so much about Lisa, but me. It is common lore that if you want French fries in England, you're going to get chips. That's what you call them. So what are potato chips called? Well, potato crisps. I did not see the phrase potato crisps or crisps anywhere. In the grocery stores, it just had the brand name. I think it just said snack on them, but you knew they were potato chips. But everywhere we ate, everywhere we had a meal, if there were fries, they were called fries on the menu. The only place, the only time we ever saw French fries referred to as chips at a pub where they had fish and chips on the menu. And even then, it said fish and chips, and then in parentheses, it said fries. So they call them fries over there, too. And there are two more things that surprise me about England in particular. I'm sure I might think of more after I get this recorded, post-produced, and released, and I'll be like, oh, I should have mentioned this. But many people have told Lisa and me, that London is a lot like New York in terms of how crowded it can be, how gritty it is. We did not find that to be true. I found it to be nothing like New York. For one thing, I absolutely loved London, and I can't wait to go back. If you were to tell me I'd never go back to New York City again, I'd be a happy man. I do not like New York. I've discussed my complicated relationship with New York in this podcast before. But London was great. Everybody was really, really friendly. Again, it might be because they hear somebody with an American accent. They might react the same way that a lot of us Americans react here in the States when we hear somebody with a British accent. Ooh, pull up a chair. Tell me everything. (laughs) It might be. I don't know. I don't know. But we found everybody in London to be super friendly, which goes against the uh, stereotype in New York. We found London to be very clean, not the least bit gritty. And London, of obviously, it is huge. It is, it is immensely huge. But it was not overcrowded. I didn't feel rushed. I didn't feel crowded. There's plenty of space, plenty of nature. I didn't think it was anything like New York at all, in any way. Didn't smell like pee. <laughs> and probably the biggest surprise about London on our last day. In fact, I think it was the morning that we were getting ready to leave and come back to Chicago. We were having our breakfast and we were watching, I don't remember if it was BBC or ITV, but they had their morning news on and they were talking about how scurvy is getting to be a problem again and rickets. But we just looked at each other and said, scurvy? Yes, scurvy. Good grief. What else is coming back? The plague? But yeah, scurvy is a problem now. And apparently the reason that scurvy is such a problem is that England is getting hella expensive and people can't afford to pay their bills anymore. So they have to cheap out on something and they cheap out on their food and they don't get the proper nutrition. So now they're dealing with scurvy. And the story we had, there was a a nutritionist on who was telling how you can still get a nutritious meal with whatever paltry money you have after paying your outrageous property taxes and everything. <laughs> but yeah, that was uh that's a little bit about my trip to England, what surprised me. I also have a little micro list I want to tack on 
I loved London. I loved it so much. I cannot wait to go back. I could imagine living there, except I really couldn't. And at this point, there are three reasons. Number one, apparently it's too expensive. Our friends who now live in Glasgow say that they would never be able to afford where they used to live in London ever again. And also, it was all over the news that not just London, but most of England is unaffordable now to most people. (laughs) Oh boy. So yeah, I, I need to live somewhere affordable. Chicago, that's affordable. Another reason I could never live in London, you cannot get a medium rare burger in the United Kingdom. It is against the law. By law, they have to cook burgers to medium well or well. The reason is all the different diseases they're afraid that could be passed on, like E. coli. I don't think mad cow disease is an issue anymore. You can get steak medium rare and rare, but not burgers because they're processed a little differently. I'm sorry, but I can't live somewhere where I can't have a decent burger. You give me something more than medium rare. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. You deserve a slap upside the head. And another reason I could never live in London, they do not have Cheez-It snack crackers in England. That's right. Yep. The friends of mine that I talked about who lived in England, well, one of them still does. When they came over to visit, I bought them Cheez-Its because they love Cheez-Its and they don't get them over there. They cannot, they they just don't sell them over there. So I sent them home with three boxes of Cheez-Its. Mind you, it's not something I chow down on all the time, but Cheez-Its are one of the greatest snacks ever invented. I've told people that if you're ever having a hard time trying to decide to get a man for his birthday or for Christmas or for whatever gift-giving occasion it is, you cannot go wrong with Cheez-Its. I've yet to meet a male who would not love Cheez-Its as a present. So I guess that was my first stab at the A Schnook's Thoughts segment, my thoughts on London, in the form of a... uh, Imaginary bulleted list, I guess. So moving on to A Schnook's Life. There have been several previous chapters in which I talked about the old adage, don't meet your heroes, sometimes relating to music, sometimes not relating to music. Well, (laughs) most recently, just in this past October, Lisa and I got to meet Henry Winkler, and it was amazing. We only got like about two seconds each with him, just a quick picture And uh, he was on basically a lecture circuit talking about his new memoir. And uh, we both walked away with a copy of it, both signed, of course. And seriously, if there is such a thing as the nicest guy in the world, it's got to be Henry Winkler. It has to be. There's The things that he said are things that we both wished we had heard when we were little kids. But having said that, that's not what this upcoming story is going to be about in a schnook's life. Mainly because I just told you the story, really, (laughs) because there wasn't much to tell. Instead, I'm going to talk about another hero that I got to meet, similar to a story in many ways that I told in one of the first episodes of this podcast. So here we go with my next installment of Don't Meet Your Heroes on A Schnook's Life. (laughs) 
way back in chapter two of this podcast, I talked about something that was a staple of the life of every young Gen Xer, such as myself, shopping malls. But to kind of bring you up to speed, if you either haven't heard that chapter or don't remember what I had to say, here goes. I spent the first 11 years of my life in Bourbonnais, Illinois, in Kankakee County, about 60 miles south of Chicago. There wasn't much to do in the greater metropolitan Kankakee area. Still isn't, in fact. We didn't even have a mall. Sometime in the 90s, they built a mall in Bradley, which is the town between Bourbonnais and Kankakee. But by that time, my family had already moved to Joliet, which had, uh, (laughs) are you sitting down? Two malls. Also by that time, malls had started to get kind of stale. They all had the same businesses. GNC, Spencer's Gifts, and a bunch of stores that catered to teenage girls. But in the 70s and 80s, you had a hell of a variety. Herman's World of Sporting Goods, Chess King, Record Bar, Strideright, Woolworths, Merry-Go-Round, Aladdin's Castle, of course, Walden Books and B. Dalton Bookseller, The Tinderbox. There was usually a Zenith TV store and at least one piano and organ store. For those into crafts, there was usually at least one fabric store, such as Minnesota Fabrics or Sofro. A mall worth its salt would also have either Circus World or KB Toys, if not both. But before we relocated to Joliet in July of 1986, we would have to go pretty far out of town to do any serious shopping. Roughly 30 miles away was Lincoln Mall in Mattison, or is it Matson? <laughs> Never get a straight answer out of those people. We'd go to Lincoln Mall once a month. I have much love for the days we'd go there. About 15 miles northwest of Lincoln Mall in Orland Park was, and as of this recording still is, Orland Square. Now, for years, we only drove past Orland Square on the way to relatives' houses, but sometime in the early 80s, I'm thinking around 1983, we decided, let's check out Orland Square. Overall, it was a much more attractive-looking mall than Lincoln Mall, but I favored Lincoln Mall for mainly one reason. At Lincoln Mall, there was Bally's Aladdin's Castle, and it was the best Aladdin's Castle in the whole chain. Sadly, there was no arcade at Orland Square. Still, though, I had some good times at Orland Square. At the time, Orland had four anchor stores, Sears, J.C. Penney, Carson Peary Scott & Company, and Marshall Field & Company. Nowadays, of course, Sears is long gone, and there is currently nothing taking its place there. And what used to be Carson Peary Scott is now, uh, is it Von Mox or Von Moe? I don't know. And uh, Marshall Field, tragically, became Macy's in September 2006, as did all of the Marshall Field stores. Now, the mall had two floors, except for, I think, Carson Peary Scott, which had three floors. Actually, it might have been uh, Marshall Field, now that I think about it. I don't know. But my parents and my brother did not believe me because they said, what are you talking about? That's a two-story mall. But I knew that on the first floor of uh, uh, whether it was Marshall Field or Carson's, I saw escalators going both upstairs and downstairs. Well, the second time we went to Orland Square, I practically dragged my parents over there to show them that I was right. One cool feature the mall had. Well, it was cool to me at the time because I never heard of it anywhere else. A glass elevator. Previously, I'd only been exposed to elevators with solid walls and solid doors. 
And if you looked up from outside of that elevator, you could actually see the cables and mechanisms that controlled the elevator car. As with any other multi-level mall, elevators weren't the only way to go from floor to floor. There were escalators and non-moving stairs. But Orland Square had something I'd never seen at a mall before, nor have I seen it since. A ramp you could walk on to go from floor to floor. And what a great option to have if you're confined to a wheelchair and the elevator is out of order. It was Orland Square where I was introduced to a thing called a food court. I don't know if the term food court existed back then, but Orland sure had one. I don't remember it having any major chain food places in the food court, though. My go-to, and I think it was my dad's go-to as well, was Burgerville Junction, a hamburger place with a train theme. Above the counter was a model train that would continuously ride around the perimeter of the counter. I would always order a menu item called Cheeseburg. If I remember correctly, they had crinkly fries, which I would dip into a small paper plate covered with mustard. Back then, mustard was my favorite condiment. I hated ketchup for a number of years. My mother's favorite place at the Orlin Food Court was Charlie Chan, which was, as you might conclude, a Chinese food joint. There was also Whistle Stop Hot Dogs and the Great Potato Factory. I don't remember what other food offerings there were in the food court, if there were any. Um, I did ask a friend of mine who's around the same age as me who grew up in Orland Park if she remembered any more, but she couldn't remember any other ones either. But regardless, even after we moved to Joliet, there was the rare occasion in which we would go to Orland Square. It's an easy enough drive from Joliet. You just hop on US 6 and take it east for half an hour. I know that because one day in 1997, I decided to check out Orland Square because it had been a long time since I went, so I asked my mom. I don't remember when in 1997 it was, but it was obviously after I got my first car, which also was in 1997. It may or may not have been after I landed my first full-time job over at Sharp Electronics. Regardless of when it was, I drove over to Orland to see what it was like. Surprisingly, not a heck of a lot changed in terms of look, vibe, and structure. Maybe the big orange signs out front with the big round 70s-era fonts, those might have been gone by then. But as I meandered the mall that day, I happened upon a store called TV Land. I don't know whether it was associated with the cable TV channel of the same name, but the store was what you probably think it was. A place to get all kinds of memorabilia relating to TV shows. King of the Hill had just started to take off, so there were plenty of King of the Hill t-shirts, lunchboxes, and posters to be had. Remember that No Ma'am club that Al Bundy and his friends formed on Married with Children? You could get No Ma'am t-shirts at TV Land, and I'm just going to say right now that I regret not getting one. As I was checking out the stuff at TV Land, I realized that the store was crowded. I mean, very crowded. And just as I wondered almost out loud, why are there so many people here? I looked up and saw that maybe two feet away from me was a table, and sitting behind that table was none other than Chicago TV legend Rich Coase, fully decked out as horror movie host Sven Gulli. By complete involuntary reflex, I said, Holy shit, Sven Gulli! I frantically looked through all the t-shirt racks, found a Sven Gulli shirt in my size, and got in line. Now, many of you listening might not know who Sven Gulli is. When you live in the greater metro Chicago area, there are many beloved local celebrities who mean a lot to you. Of course you have Michael Jordan, but on a less nationally known level, there is Bob Bell, WGN's original bozo. 
Tom Skilling, the soon-retiring meteorologist also from WGN. Lynn Haldren, who you might know better as the Empire Carpets guy. And yes, America, we Chicago-area folk have known that singing phone number jingle for decades. Terry Hemmert, beloved longtime WXRT radio host who just days before this recording celebrated her 50th year in radio. And Samuel Chambers. Wait, you've never heard of Samuel Chambers? If you've ever spent more than a few days in downtown Chicago in the past 20 years or so, Google Samuel Chambers Chicago and you'll know exactly whom I'm talking about. For those of you who don't get Svengoolie's TV show in your market, I'll give you a bit of a background. Way back in the early 70s, there was a show on WFLD here in Chicago called Screaming Yellow Theater, a Friday night horror movie program. The booth announcer for the show was radio personality Jerry G. Bishop. Sometimes when coming back from a commercial, he would adopt a Transylvanian accent for his announcements. No, back to our movie. I can't do accents, by the way. That was my best attempt ever. <laughs> that faux Transylvanian accent led him to creating a horror host named Sven Gulli, who was a hippie in horror makeup. During the run of Screaming Yellow Theater, a fan named Rich Coase would write in with ideas for comedy sketches. Well, Jerry eventually hired Rich as a writer for the show. After three years, Kaiser Broadcasting bought WFLD from Field Communications. That was in uh, 1973. They canceled Screaming Yellow Theater and replaced it with The Ghoul, a similar hosted horror movie show out of Cleveland. Well, as it turns out, Field Communications bought WFLD back from Kaiser in 1978, which prompted Jerry Bishop and Rich Coase to get together and talk about reviving the Sven Gulli show which they did in June of 1979. This time the show was called Son of Sven Gulli and was hosted not by Jerry G. Bishop, but with Rich Coase in the title role. Well, there you are, sir. I hope you'll be very happy in your new home. Son of Sven Gulli was not really a hippie. I don't know quite how to describe him. Uh, Google it, you'll find him. <laughs> Anyways, I know it seems dismissive, but I want to get on with the uh, podcast here. Son of Sven Gulli ran until 1986 when Fox bought WFLD from Metro Media, who had previously bought WFLD from Field Communications. Rupert Murdoch's people decided that a show such as Son of Sven Gulli was not up to the standards of a network television show. Having said that, though, that was not the end of Rich Coe's at WFLD. At various times over the next few years, Rich would host weekday afternoon kids shows such as Fox Kids Club and The Coe's Zone. Rich would also spend time on the radio, filling in on WGN, and eventually becoming a regular host on WCKG, which at the time was a classic rock station. Now, flashing forward to the end of 1994, WCIU, another longtime Chicago TV station, relaunched the show once again hosted by Rich Coase. This time, the show was simply called Svengoolie. Wait a minute, you're probably asking, why did they call it Svengoolie and not Son of Svengoolie? Well, because Jerry G. Bishop told Rich, I feel you've grown up enough that you don't need to be called the Son anymore. And Svengoolie has been on the air ever since, and in fact recently expanded from a two-hour show to a two-and-a-half-hour show. In addition to showing usually B-grade horror movies, there are host segments and sketches. And by the way, a good way to identify a Svengoolie fan 
is to mention Berwin in conversation. You'll know your interlocutor is a Svengoolie fan if that person says, Berwin! For those of you not familiar with the Chicago area, Berwyn is a suburb adjacent to the southwest side of Chicago, and Svengoolie's little soundbite of voices saying, Berwyn! is his equivalent, as he sees it, to Gary Owens' famous beautiful downtown Burbank in Rowan and Martin's Laugh-In. Um, coincidentally, there's also a suburb adjacent to the southwest side of Chicago called Burbank. But almost any time Sven mentions a town, whether or not it's Berwyn, you're going to hear that soundbite. Berwyn! As would any other self-respecting Chicagoan, I watch Sven Gulli from time to time. Uh, usually depends on what movie he's showing. So naturally, when I was browsing at TV Land and saw him, I was pretty excited. As I was standing in the long line for his autograph, I watched Rich as he interacted with everybody. And I'm talking people who range in age from older Gen Xers, possibly some boomers, all the way down to little kids who couldn't be older than five. He was so kind to everybody. At one point, somebody walked by the store, stopped, and yelled, Well, what do you know? Rich Coe's as I live and breathe. So Sven looked out toward the entrance, stopped what he was doing, and said, Oh my God, how are you? It's so good to see you. And there they were chatting briefly, kind of across the store. <laughs> and all of a sudden, Sven remembered where he was, and he apologized profusely at the person at his table. He said, God, I'm, I'm so sorry. That's, that's an old friend from my days at WCKG. <laughs> when it was my turn, I very briefly introduced myself. Now, I had been working as a weekend jock at the Cat 105.5 for a while, and I had heard our morning show host slash program director talk about Rich Coe's as if he were a friend. So during my moment with Sven Gulli, I dropped Mike Tomano's name. He said, you know, Mike? Oh, wow. Hey, you give him a big hello from me. I haven't talked to him in so long. I got to call him. He autographed my t-shirt and I thanked him and I was then on my way. It wasn't until literally this point in writing the script when it occurred to me that this isn't my first meet-and-greet-a-local-celebrity experience in a mall and walking away with an autograph. You might remember much earlier in this podcast's life when I talked about meeting the Lone Ranger, Chicago's very own Clayton Moore, at Lincoln Mall in 1979. If you heard that episode, you might remember that I had no idea who this Lone Ranger guy was. But apparently he was a television star. This four-year-old schnook had no idea why his parents were making such a big deal about me having to meet the Lone Ranger. This time, however, in 1997, I was at a mall and met someone I actually did remember seeing on television. I remember talking about Sven Gulli on another podcast I used to host, and upon writing the script for that episode... I actually got a little emotional writing about how important Sven Gulli is to us Chicago folk. Once again, I say to those who say, don't meet your heroes. Why not? The encounters I've had meeting heroes, be they my heroes or other heroes, going all the way back to Clayton Moore and continuing with such personalities as Neil Innes, Badfinger's Joey Molland, Monkey's Mike Nesmith and Peter Tork, Beach Boys' Ricky Fatar and Brian Wilson, Chicago's forever beloved Tom Skilling and Rich Coes, and most recently American treasure Henry Winkler, among others, all have been positive. I don't know. I'm a schnook, but I guess I'm good at picking heroes?
Also among the shows that Rich Coase has hosted, besides The Coase Zone and Son of Svenguli, Svenguli, etc., was Stoogapalooza, which I think he stopped making about five or six years ago. But it was basically just Rich Coase showing a bunch of Three Stooges films with uh, introductory segments and everything. And uh, I'm bringing this up only because I like to tell this to people. In the closing credits of Stoogapalooza, there is a credit for legal services provided by, and of course, the law firm was Dewey, Cheatham, and Howe. So I had to mention that. Now, one of the reasons that this episode was so much delayed, I didn't intend to take this much of a hiatus, was quite simply because I love talking about music, as you know, if you've been listening to this podcast regularly. Every episode has something about music in it, but I could not figure out what topic to discuss. And then it became obvious in early November 2023 when it was announced that a third song from the 1994-1995 anthology sessions in which George Harrison, Paul McCartney, and Ringo Starr overdubbed onto a John Lennon demo was about to come out. Thanks to the help of artificial intelligence software provided by Peter Jackson, they were actually able to get a nice, clean-sounding vocal of John Lennon off of a demo called Now and Then. So it was able to be finished satisfactorily. And of course, there was a lot of big hype about it coming up. And I figured, ooh, that, that is going to be the music topic for a schnooks music in chapter 46. And I had to bring on a fellow Beatles fan with me, specifically my wife, Lisa. So you're going to hear us discuss our thoughts of now and then and a few other things kind of related to it as well. This is going to be a long talk. It's about an hour long, and uh, that's after editing quite a lot out, too. <laughs> so um, kick back and um, just spend an hour listening to two fans nerd out about the Beatles. As we record this edition of A Schnook's Music, the first edition to be titled that, by the way, after my little... Uh, re-jiggering of this weird, self-indulgent, but uh, self-therapeutic podcast. It is November 5th, 2023, the day after a really interesting week for us. Not the least because we got to see Henry Winkler do a Q&A, and we got to meet him and get our pictures taken oh with him. Oh my god. <laughs> and he retweeted what I posted I know, too. Which isn't that awesome? I want, oh man, that might bring more listeners to this podcast. So I might actually have six listeners. <laughs> but it was such an interesting week, not just because of that, but also because you and I both like the Beatles, right? Um, I think so. I, I like the Beatles. <laughs> I know it might be shocking for some people to hear that that I like the Beatles, but there has been some interesting development in the Beatles world. And there's also some interesting development in that it is the first day of standard time this year. And as a result, our Beagle is a little bit out of sync and is wondering why she is not eating right now. So yeah, she's might, pacing around. Yeah. So <laughs> she might be interrupting the, uh, the recording here. Having said that, thanks to the MAL, the MAL technology of Peter Jackson's facilities, 
what does that MAL stand for? It's like machine assisted machine learning. Machine assisted or learning, I think. Yeah. Which, by the way, is a form of artificial intelligence. I don't care what anybody tells you. Oh, it's not AI. Yes, it is. It's not the same kind of AI that's been doing those YouTube videos of people making other artists sound like other artists. Like, oh, yeah, here's a fake new recording from uh, Brian Wilson. A fake new recording from, I think, Lil Wayne, maybe, was another one that's been getting a lot of that. Or ways that you can have uh, very, very strange photographs of John Oliver. <laughs> Yeah, it's a different kind of AI. Back in, was it 93, 94-ish, I keep, I keep getting those dates confused. When Yoko Ono Lennon reached out to at least Paul McCartney, I don't know if she reached out to um, George and or Ringo, but she said, I have here a tape that has some demos that John was working on. Well, Do you wasn't, wanna- I believe it was, she was talking with Paul at the um, Rock and Roll Hall of Fame induction when John was inducted as a solo artist. Might have been. I believe that was it, that they were talking. She had come across this tape and thought that she would offer it to, because probably, this is just a guess, but this was back at the time when you had recordings that were made pulling from existing recordings because digital technology made it possible to have, say, Natalie Cole sing a duet with her father. That was put out only maybe a year or two before this. Yeah, that was around 91, 92 And then uh, wasn't there, didn't Hank Williams Jr. Oh, do a duet know. with his father? Didn't, they might have. I think, I want to say that there was something done like that. So you had these, some kind of archival recording put together with a brand new recording and the digital technology made it possible for everything to sound really good. Yeah. So I think that's what may have given Yoko the idea, instead of just putting out some things as had been done on various box sets and the lost linen tapes and different things, she may have thought, well, let me offer this to Paul and George and Ringo and see if they want to do something with it. Yeah, and uh, the way it's been told is that Yoko said, well, I found this tape of John. It's like, come on, you have probably hundreds of tapes <laughs> of John doing demos. Well, I think the thing about it was they were demos that she thought might have been good candidates for a Beatle treatment. Could be, could be. As opposed to something that would be too definitively solo John. Anyway, those songs were Free as a Bird. Real love. Anybody who's into the Beatles has probably heard those songs by now. (laughs) Uh, Grow Old With Me, which Ringo recently released a version of. And of course, Grow Old With Me, John actually did. Well, not John, but there was a formal studio recording of John performing that, which was released on the posthumous Milk and Honey album, Mm -hmm. which kind of tells me that's probably why the Beatles considered that off limits. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Because it had already been put out on a Lennon project. Yeah. It had already been heard. And also, too, I mean, again, this is just my guess, is that if you're looking at those four songs, Grow Old With Me, that wouldn't really do well in a Beatle treatment because yeah. that is too definitively solo John. Like, that is a song that John obviously wrote for Yoko. Yeah. And it really wouldn't have worked as a Beatles song. Or any group song, really. That's way too personal. So Ringo covering it, that's another thing. He could cover it as a John cover. 
or the like Beatles. a John or like a John tribute, you yeah. know, because you look at I mean, Ringo was no stranger to doing John compositions. Oh, no, he was not. <laughs> so this may have been just kind of another continuation of songs like uh, Goodnight Vienna and I Am the Greatest and yeah. things like that. Yeah, absolutely. And um, the fourth song, of course, I don't know what order they were on the tape, but the fourth general song <laughs> on that tape was, of course, Now and Then which Paul George and Ringo had begun recording over during the anthology project that they also did Real Love and uh, Free as a Bird. But it was determined, yeah, this doesn't really work for us. The quality is too bad. The piano's too overpowering. We can't really separate well, it. Well, it's also from what I read, there was some kind of hum on the tape yeah. that existed in the other songs, but they were able to scrub that out for the mm -hmm. most part, on Free as a Bird in Real Love, where on Now and Then, the technology they had in 94, 95 wasn't quite up to snuff to really clean that up. Yeah, absolutely. And, and also, I think George really wasn't happy with it. And because the Beatles are a democracy, they... Yeah, and we'll get back to that in a moment. But about that hum, yeah. Desktop technology, for, like Audacity can remove that kind of a hum. I do it all the time when I record a podcast, whether it be here or another podcast, like the air conditioning in the background, mm -hmm. I can eliminate that. But could you have eliminated it in 1994, 95? Not without a lot of trouble, at least. Yeah. I mean, they just may not have had the time, whatever... And I totally know reason. why. I totally know why it was there. It's because John recorded those demos on a Sony boombox using, even though the boombox had microphone inputs, he didn't use that. He used the uh, built-in condenser microphones. Mm -hmm. And anybody who's ever used a cassette recorder with a built-in microphone knows that it's going to pick up the mechanism. And mm -hmm. there's no way around that. Yeah. Without using microphone inputs, of course. Well, again, these were home demos. Yeah. This was not anything that John ever put down with the intent of it being used in a released recording. These were yeah. just his rough drafts. Absolutely. And so, and, it's, yeah. and let's just face it, it sounds that way on all three of those songs. Mm -hmm. That is not a full effort by John. He's just basically laying something down. Yeah. He's not putting his heart into it. It's not quite the extent of, say, if you listen to a Michael Jackson demo in which he's barely singing at all. Mm -hmm. I heard a Billie Jean demo and he's almost unrecognizable because of the way he's delivering it because he's saving his voice so he doesn't basically shoot his voice out mm -hmm. for the real thing where he can really go all mm -hmm. out. And John might have done that to some kind of extent. But going back to the whole thing about George didn't like it, now and then some people say, well, George said the song is rubbish. Some people say... Well, the sound quality is too bad. I don't want to really want to do any further work on something that we can't make sound good. The thing is, whether or not you agree, yeah, it's a democracy, but the fact is, the Beatles did not always throw a song out simply because somebody in the group didn't like it. Case in point, Maxwell's Silver Hammer. Mm. I don't think the other three liked it. I really don't. Well, uh, they were wrong. <laughs> Because that's a great song. <laughs> it, it, I love it. I, like, Ringo didn't like it. I don't think John was a fan of it. And somebody once pointed out, I think it was actually Bill O'Reilly, of all people, pointed out, well, John didn't sing on it because he hated it. Well, not yeah. necessarily the reason he wasn't on that recording was because he was in the hospital. Yeah. 
I mean, it also could be that the other three didn't like it because it was Paul. <laughs> or, That's true. Or it could be George didn't want to work on Now and Then because he was... <laughs> Paul was getting on his nerves and he wanted to go back to his garden. <laughs> no, seriously, if you watch the uh, bonus videos in the anthology oh, DVD yeah. set. Oh, yeah, I know what you're, yeah. you're going to like. <laughs> George is clearly getting annoyed with Paul. And at one point when they're all jamming together, Paul says, hey, let's do uh, Blue Moon of Kentucky. And then George said, let's do a short version. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the two of them went way back. Like they were literally not even teenagers when they first met, when they became friends. So... All that time, like George must be must know. He's like, okay, now I remember why. <laughs> He's like, okay, Paul is good in small doses. <laughs> I mean, yeah, you can love somebody to oh yeah to pieces, but that doesn't mean they still don't get on your nerves. <laughs> yeah, absolutely, absolutely. But having said all that, um, my first thought was uh, when the the twelve minute video, the mini documentary, came out the day before now and then was released. I wasn't a big fan of the song from what I heard in that video when they were playing clips of the demo itself. I'm like, okay, this is not one of the greatest John songs. I could see why no further work was done on it by John as far as we know. Real Love, however, we know that's not the only demo of Real Love. There's another version of Real Love on the Imagine John Lennon soundtrack. So that was a song he definitely wanted to do something with. Mm -hmm. We don't have any uh, evidence that he wanted to do anything further with Free as a Bird or Now and Then, as far as I know. Because I haven't, I haven't dove uh, that deeply into John's solo archives <laughs> to really pay attention to that. But when I first heard it, I'm thinking, okay, this is not one of John's best songs. What I'm really looking forward to is how they actually finish it. Because what did we see? We saw that, for example, there was a string arrangement being overdubbed onto it. And um, from the bits that I could hear in that documentary, I thought, oh my God, this is exactly what George Martin would have done. Mm -hmm. It is done in his style. It has his dynamics. And we had Giles Martin over there making well, sure. I mean, um, Yeah, because it was arranged by his son, who yeah. literally was an apprentice. I yeah. mean, Giles Martin worked alongside his father for quite a few years before he, probably about the time that George Martin knew he needed to retire because his hearing was failing and yeah. he wanted to make a graceful exit from his uh, career as a producer. But before that, he definitely taught his son the ropes. And of course, Giles already had his own education and experience. But it's like he worked alongside his father. Mm -hmm. And basically, because both of them probably knew that somebody would have to pick up the reins after George Martin was no longer with us or no longer yeah. able to be a an accurate producer well, heck, even seven or eight years after he retired he came back to help out with love yeah he still was available to consult yeah and he worked on various projects but giles was sitting there with him and he passed along a wealth of knowledge that giles has definitely used in the various uh remix re-release projects and yeah he's a very good steward Absolutely. And by the way, I have to raise a glass to Judy Martin. Rest in peace, Judy. A few days ago, she died from when we're recording this. Uh, mm. So love goes out to Giles and family. Mm. So 
no matter what I think about the song, which I found boring, and I'm going to confess, there's one reason I found boring, and you're going to roll your eyes about this. I cannot control this at all. There's a lot of A minor in it. It's in A minor for the most part, if not the entire part. A minor triggers my boredom very much. A lot of songs that I don't like tend to have a lot of A minor chords, like Love Her Madly by The Doors, Things We Said Today by The Beatles, that song by Talking Heads, I don't know the name of it, but it basically sounds like they're trying to do Love Her Madly. Stairway to Heaven, too much (laughs) A minor, so A minor, Losing My Religion, A minor. There you go. So something in A minor that has mainly A minor all the way through it is going to turn my brain off. It's not the fault of the composer. It's not the fault of the musicians. It's just how my brain was wired. Having said that, when I actually heard the new release, the actual finished product, the next day, I was walking Lola, the beagle. I was walking her over to her little daycare place, Bark Bark Club. And after I dropped her off, I put my headphones on and streamed now and then over YouTube. And I was very underwhelmed. I really was. Because I'm thinking, okay, it's still boring. And I'm listening and I'm listening. I'm like, okay, what happened to those wonderful strings that were in the documentary? I can barely hear them at all. And I'm thinking, well, truth be told, I wasn't expecting greatness. Because Free as a Bird didn't do a heck of a lot for me. Real Love also didn't, although I preferred it over Free as a Bird. And... I guess that just kind of set a precedent for me. I wasn't expecting greatness. This is, not, as many people have said, this was never going to be Strawberry Fields forever. <laughs> so that's it. You know, I listened to it on the way home, and something weird was going on because I could not get the damn song out of my <laughs> head. It kept playing over and over. I'm thinking, okay, songs that get in my head are typically not ones that I don't like. I gave it another listen once I was home in this exact room where you and I are talking right now. I played it again, listening to it not through my headphones, which are really good headphones. You have the same pair, so you know. But through these speakers that I have on my computer, the Bose speakers, mind you, they're sort of good. And I'm listening to it over YouTube, and it clicked. I got it. I didn't necessarily love it, but I'm like, okay, this works. This absolutely works. It's still not the greatest thing ever. Not that I was expecting it to be, but it works. And a couple of more listens, I'm like, okay, I think I'm liking this now. As I'm speaking right now, do I love it? No. Do I like it? Absolutely. I've been talking a lot. Why don't you? Yeah, it's the same kind of thing that when the song started, it kind of went back to 1995 at the first notes of Free as a Bird. Like, it sounded kind of gloomy, kind of a rainy day, and it wasn't the kind of Beatles song like She Loves You or Revolution or just something where it's going to be, like, bright and bouncy. But of course, you have to remember, Lennon was not, I mean, he wasn't writing songs that were bright and bouncy at that time, and it's not because... I don't think it was because he wasn't happy because in the late 70s, that's when he was in his house husband, raising the baby, baking bread (laughs) years. But I think he was very introspective about his life and what he had been through, where he had come from. And I 
I heard some things on the radio talking about this. And, you know, when you look at a song like Woman, he looks back over pretty much everything and Mm -hmm. is grateful to Yoko for being there for him, for challenging him, for loving him in ways that he had never had before, but that he was always desiring and always seeking. Mm -hmm. I think that's just kind of the vibe that he was in at the time in his songwriting. So once I kind of got past that, and you look at the song for what it is, that it's, first of all, a treat. It's something we never... I mean, who thought we were ever going to get any new Beatle material after 1970? Yeah, seriously. It's like... Like, we're talking newly recorded material, not like archival stuff. Yeah, I mean, it's... So, I mean, the three songs that we've gotten are a total gift. And just also, when you realize the technology, like, in that 12-minute documentary and in some other things that I've heard and read over the past couple days... Like Sean Ono Lennon pointed out how the Beatles were always looking at technology and his father was mm-hmm. always toying with things in the studio. I mean, the things that they did, like the tape loops, the feedback yep. on I Feel Fine. And for God's sakes, technology was literally invented <laughs> yeah. because of what they wanted to do. Yeah. John said, all right, you know how we double track our vocals a lot to make ourselves sound bright? And that's a very, cu- like just about any popular song you listen to, you're going to hear multiple sets of the same vocal. You might hear, say, I don't know, two Justin Biebers. I think mm-hmm. I don't think Billie <laughs> Eilish does that, but yeah. any professional recording, you're going to hear two sets of vocals just to beef up the sound a little bit, that double tracking. Well, Come 1966, John voiced how he was getting tired of having to sing everything twice. He said, is there anything we can do to beef up that sound the same way, but so that I don't have to sing everything a second time correctly? So I think it was Jeff Emmerich who came up with uh, artificial double tracking, which is basically kind of a echo delay spread across the stereo spectrum. So it sounds like there are two John Lennon vocals, but there's really only one. Yeah, yeah. And also, back then, they were... Just one example. They were working with things that were pretty rudimentary. I mean, it was all mechanical. Like, they didn't have digital technology or anything like that that they had in the 90s. I mean, it's always been my belief that if John were still with us, like I was just telling you this the other day, that John would have had one of those first Macintosh computers. Sean had an Apple II, so I wouldn't be surprised. Like, John Lennon probably would have been close friends with Steve Jobs. He probably would have been at the forefront of a lot of new technology. He probably would have wanted to try out these things. He would have been on the internet. He would have oh, been Oh, Yoko on, herself said John would have been an internet geek. He would have been on social media. Mm-hmm. And we're not talking about, like, a staff member, you know, an employee writing posts for him. If you saw a post somewhere from John Lennon, you could bet that he wrote it himself. Absolutely. (laughs) I mean, he would have totally loved all... He would have been fascinated by AI and the fact that they could take... They could do things that were not possible even 20, 25 years ago. Absolutely. I think he would have absolutely loved this stuff. So it's like... I mean, you have to look at it for that, just kind of the miracle of it. Like when you listen to Free as a Bird or Real Love, how his voice 
it's definitely his voice, but oh, yeah. it's a little kind of tinny mm-hmm. and hollow sounding. Mm-hmm. Like it, it's definitely not like he's right there. Yeah. And the thing is, if you listen to newer masters of those songs with headphones, it's very distracting because yeah. you can actually hear where they're fading the demo tapes in and out. And it's and ugh. again, it's good for that's why I don't listen to them. It's good for. 1995 but this isn't 1995 this is 2023 and the fact that they could take vocals off of a cassette tape from 1977 i mean it sounds just absolutely amazing i mean seriously i can't even imagine how paul and ringo must have reacted when they heard john's voice isolated Mm -hmm. and clean they must have been just beside themselves. And I want to comment this because I saw some person comment about how, well, people are saying that John's voice sounds clean and bright on this. And that's rubbish, dude. Okay. Maybe when you compare to a proper studio recording, yeah. maybe, but when you compare it to the demo before Peter Jackson got a hold of it, oh yeah, it is basically have a diaper on. It's absolutely it, stunning. It's like, it's a bloody beetle. Shut up. <laughs> just, just shut up and enjoy it. And count me in among the many who hope that if they didn't do this already, and it's just waiting for an opportunity for a release, that they go back with Free as a Bird and Real Love and do the same technique and be, stick it back in the song. That would be amazing if they could do that. That would improve those two songs tremendously. I don't think they'd be any greater than they, but the overall well, no, but sound the sound, would it, John would sound a lot better. Yeah. So I kind of just take it for what it is, that it's a marvel and it's a treat. It's a gift. And I think that Paul and Ringo approach this with a great deal of respect oh, yeah. and dignity and being mindful of not just what they want from this recording, from this project, but I think they were respectful and mindful of what the millions and millions of fans would want. That there are things that people would expect and they know that they can't just run around and do whatever they want. They have to be considerate of the people who love Beatles music, the people for whom Beatles music changed their lives, and they have to honor that. And I feel like this project did that. I really think it did provide a lot of love to John and the two (laughs) Georges, Harrison and Martin. (laughs) Yes. And wow. On top of all that you just said, I also would like to think that if nothing else... Ringo and Paul got this as an opportunity they did not think they would have 30 years ago. One more chance to play with John, even though he wasn't physically there. And George. And this time George. Yeah, absolutely. Because you got to think of it because, yeah, they broke up 1969, 1970. There was kind of some ill feeling going around i think mostly toward paul oh yeah 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 because the other three were (laughs) the other three were on great terms and they worked on each other's projects and yep and that uh was it in the um imagine documentary when when john is uh playing how do you sleep for george and say yeah this is really gonna piss off paul or something (laughs) (laughs) oh he was taking great delight in playing that for george (laughs) but 
the truth is the four of them really loved the hell out of each other and they well, still do. Yeah. You know? And I think with all the things that they have done in their lives and all the successes and the accolades, I mean, which is all great. Like they have so much to look at both in terms of Beatle accomplishments and also their own individual solo work and charity work and all the other things. Yeah. There's still nothing like the Beatles. Yeah, absolutely. And they still have a tremendous amount of gratitude that they had this in their lives. Yeah. That and they, like, it's very, very special. And it's kind of like, yeah, I mean, they didn't want to keep being Beatles and they should not have been Beatles. No, of I mean, course not. I mean, I don't know how unpopular this opinion is, but I think they broke up at the right time. I don't I'd have to agree. I don't think I would want to see like Beatles in the 70s because then we would have had disco Beatles and that would have been terrible. Mm, maybe, maybe not. I don't, but you get what I'm saying. Or, that, and we would have had 80s electronica Beatles. Oh, you want to have an idea what that would have sounded oh, like? Listen to Come Dancing by oh, the Kinks. God. But no, I mean, I think they broke up at the right time. I yeah. think how things unfolded is how they should have been. And again, I'm speaking from the perspective of somebody who was not even born yet when me the Beatles too. We're broke gen, up. We're Gen Xers. So for me to see, I'm looking at the Beatles as a complete entity. Yes. So I mean, I'm not saying anybody who was around during the Beatles time is wrong for thinking otherwise. I'm just saying this is my opinion. So I think they broke up at the right time, but that doesn't mean that they hated the Beatles. That doesn't mean they never wanted to be of course to not. be associated with the Beatles. Yeah. And once in a while, I think it was like a jacket. It's like you put it back on and you're like, it still fits. Yeah, and absolutely. It's, there's something like they probably really got a lot out of doing anthology fact of the matter is Ringo is 83 mm -hmm. Paul is 81 both men seem to be in excellent health yep they're still doing stuff they're still touring they're still doing projects they've got grandchildren they're happy satisfied men but they know the clock is ticking yeah and like, if we can have one more chance to play only, with these guys there's let's only do so it. much more time that they have. Yeah. So it's kind of like, hey, if we can do this, if we're able, let's do it. Yeah, absolutely. And just this whole thing just makes me think about two specific Beatley things. One is that there's the famous album cover of Unfinished Music Number Two, Life with the Lions, with Yoko in the hospital. They were just in a mm -hmm. car accident, I think. Oh, no, no. That was when Yoko miscarried. Yes. And uh, John's kind of uh, lying down on the floor next to her. Yeah. I have seen the full picture. The cover photograph is very cropped. If you see the whole photograph, original uncropped, you can see that basically John set himself up a little living corner mm -hmm. in the room next to yeah. Yoko. And in that corner on the wall, he has pictures of Ringo, Paul, and George pinned up from the White Album. So it's like he could have his friends with him. And this was <laughs> not at the greatest time to be a Beatle, too. Because this is when things were really starting to uh, kind of, there was a lot of tension going on. They were on the verge of breaking up. Well, but keep in mind that they were breaking up 
not because they hated each That's other. That's very true. It's not because they wanted to get away from each other and never talk to each other again, or because they had too many working conflicts where they couldn't see eye to eye on artistic direction and and all of that. It was more that they had different interests. Yep. They were getting married. Ringo already had kids. John wanted to start a family with Yoko. Paul was with Linda. George was with Patty. They had other interests. They had things that were not part of the Beatle world, which is fine. That's like what you're supposed to do when you're an I think, adult. I think Paul still wanted to be involved in it, but I think the rest of them might have seen him as like keeping them away from what they really wanted to do. At well, the yeah, time. But, but I mean, but the thing is, Paul still wanted to do concerts and wanted to do yeah. certain things, but. Paul also had Linda, yes. who had already had a daughter, and he wanted to be with Linda and start a life with her. So he still had things that were outside of the Beatles, Yeah, he too. absolutely did. It's always been said how the Beatles were like a marriage. And, yeah. you know, you look at in our marriage, we have our own interests. There are things that we do not together. Yep. And that's Okay. Like, that's actually makes the relationship stronger and healthier. You don't have to be in each other's face all the time. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I think the Beatles were kind of looking at that, especially at the point that they were at, that they were in their late 20s. And that's kind of when you, anybody starts to kind of make a shift and yeah, start absolutely. kind of either settle down or you pick up and move, like where mm -hmm. you might change careers or go back to college or whatever. So it's often for many people, it's a big transitional time. Yeah. So for them, especially with all they had been through, that's just how it was. So they weren't trying to like, it's not that they were breaking up. It was more like they were breaking away to get to different things that they wanted to do in their lives that didn't necessarily have to do with each other. That is true. And the other thing that kind of ran through my mind in this whole discussion is from Paul. Now, a very common question everybody in the world gets asked this, who would your super group be, your dream band that you could put together and either play with or, or see perform? And of course, you're going to have people, oh, Jimmy Page on guitar, Keith Moon on drums, Geddy Lee on bass, Keith Emerson on keys, and things like that. What was Paul's answer when he was asked once, who would be in your dream band? Did he say uh, George? He would say George, George, he said Ringo, George and John. Ringo and John. Yep. Well, I mean, the fact is... And this like, was fairly recent, too. The fact is, this whole super group thing, I mean, it's kind of a silly question because, I mean, who's to say these people would be able to gel together and I mean, work yeah. together? I mean, Keith Moon is a brilliant drummer, but there are probably a lot of people who would never be able to tolerate... And I'm not even oh, yeah. talking about his <laughs> zaniness, because I'm rereading Roger Daltrey's book, and Roger said how, like, Keith never rehearsed. Keith was not like a drum student. It just was in him naturally, and he would just sit down in the recording studio and be like, blah, 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 yeah. and, and do his thing. And a lot of times, as we've heard on various uh, material, that they would let him do his thing and then go back in and clean it up in the mixing, like tone yeah. things down, bring mm -hmm. things in and Going out. Going mobile is a classic yeah. example. And they knew how to work with Keith, especially because they had been working, you know, the Who had been working with Keith since he was 
17. So somebody coming in to work with him after he was already famous with all the things, like they probably would throw him out a window. <laughs> yeah. So it's like, you know, the whole super group thing, it's, I think it's kind of silly because no matter how talented you may be, you don't know if it's actually going to work. Yeah. Case in point. Who, Crosby, like, Stills, and Nash. <laughs> no, that worked. Yeah. But no, they, I'm thinking. Yeah, but they hated each other. <laughs> I'm thinking two people who, whose birthdays are two days apart. They were born oh, two yeah, days Brian apart. And, and they're both considered geniuses. Yeah. But Brian and Paul are two different They're kinds. way too different. And when they when the two did get together, they put out this dopey ass stupid, stupid yeah. song. It was awful. Oh, man. But. But yeah, so Paul had such a, I mean, it's no surprise that that's how he answered because he had, they went way back together, yep. way, way, Especially way back. Especially he and George. To back when they were kids, when they had no money, when they had no fame, when they weren't really getting to where other people that they were performing alongside were getting on big shows or yep. getting contracts. and. I mean, I love how an anthology, when Paul kind of ruefully talks about like how they were involved with some kind of uh, contest talent, you know, American Idol sort of thing or whatever, and and how like he says we lost again, mm -hmm. <laughs> and how many times they you know were turned down by recording companies, and yep, I mean, Parlophone was pretty much their last shot, and yep. they were through the wars together, yeah. which is how they were able to survive Beatlemania together. Now, having said all this, here is a big question to think about. There are many people who, even if they like now and then, and maybe real love and uh, free as a bird. There are many who say, okay, this is cool and everything, but it's not the Beatles. What do you think about that? Okay, so my response is, define the Beatles. Exactly. You can't, because there are so many different things that they did. For me, you know, you listen to Now and Then, there are things that are definitively Beatles, just like how in Free as a Bird, that part of the bridge, that that moment where it's like, that little vocal moment where it's like, yes, this is this is the Beatles. Yeah, let's let's hear that. Let's drop that in here. I think we can get away with it uh, legally here. So, I mean, it is the Beatles. You know, it's the Beatles. You know, it's yeah. Paul and Ringo and George's guitar and John's singing and the little backing vocal clips from because that they put in there and i mean it's a beatles record shut up <laughs> well because there and i mean there are people who and this goes for any fan community but i think it's a hundred times magnified for the beatles just because of the weight of their importance and just worldwide acclaim and all of this I mean, everybody wants to be a critic. Everybody wants of it course. to be. They want it to be exactly the way they envisioned it would be. And if it doesn't match what's in your head, it must be garbage. Again, this happens in every fandom for every kind of thing. Mm -hmm. The people who did Star Wars Episode 7, 8, and 9. There are people who wanted to go after them with uh, torches and boiling oil. <laughs> and you can tell that I'm not a huge, huge Star Wars fan because I loved well, those yeah. movies. <laughs> and so did I. <laughs> you have people who are always going to try to 
act like they know more and dissect it and cut it down instead of just sitting back and freaking enjoying it for what it is. Yeah. And an interesting observation that I've made, it seems to me, I mean, yeah, you have a range of Beatles fans who either hate this song, what they put out with and the everything behind it to those who love it and will sing its praises to the high heaven. But it seems to me the ones who are the most vocally against it were people who aren't even Beatles fans in the first place. Well, yeah, it's like the people who don't read the article. Yeah, <laughs> it's I like mean, you're always going to have You're not that. if you're not a fan, we don't expect you to like it. Don't you know it's okay. You don't have to be all up in arms about it's like it. This, you know? this isn't necessarily for you. Yeah, and and if, you, <laughs> and if you don't think they did the right thing, well, tell that to uh Go go to the Beatles site and try to order this stuff. You can't. It's almost entirely sold out. Again, this has always existed, but I think the internet, of course, has fed this kind of critic fan culture, you know, where it's like, I know more than everybody else, and it has to be exactly what I wanted it to be, and if it's not, it's garbage. Yeah, and for those who say, well, it's not the Beatles, I'm I'm just going to say this. I can't disagree. Personally, do I think it's the Beatles? I I don't know. I mean, it has their name on it. It's officially sanctioned by Apple Records, and um, it's got all four of the Beatles on it. I say, if you say, yes, it is definitively the Beatles, great. If you say, no way in hell, great. That's fine. I can understand both sides. Now, let me ask you this, dear. I think it was, was it January 1970? George Harrison, Ringo Starr, Paul McCartney get together at the demand of, I guess, you, let's just say United Artists. They say, because we see you performing I, Me, Mine in the Let It Be movie, and it's going to be included in the movie, it has to be on the album. Problem. They didn't actually record it in the studio. They don't have a releasable version of it, so they have to get together in January and record it to put on the album. John Lennon, not present. For one thing, he officially quit the group in September of 1969. Another thing, the story that they all say is, well, he was on vacation with Yoko, he was unavailable, so they did it without him. So regardless, you have George, Paul, and Ringo, and no other Beatles on that, well, no other Beatle on it. Having said that, thinking about that, and also the fact that there are many songs in the Beatles canon from 1962 to 1969-70, that don't have all four Beatles. Ballad of John and Yoko is just John and Paul. Blackbird, Yesterday, is just Paul. Julia is just John, etc. What if, in 1994-1995, George, Paul, and Ringo got together, recorded a brand new song that had no John involvement whatsoever? Is it the Beatles? No. Why not? Because John is not involved. He wasn't involved with Yesterday. He wasn't but, involved with uh, But I Mean Mine. But those songs were, well, first of all, what's the writing credit on Yesterday? Lennon McCartney. What's the writing credit on I Me mean Mine? George Harrison. Oh, okay. <laughs> Scratch that. But up until, well, let's see. I mean, there are several different dates you can mark this up as. Because the first official, yes, I know John had quit sometime before, but April 1970 was the first real, actual saying the Beatles are over. Yes. And then there were several times over the years, but I think it was by 1973, 
when John signed the papers at uh, the Polynesian Village Resort in <laughs> in Disney World, which just cracks me up. <laughs> well, he did it for tax reasons. No, but, I, I, there was some but kind I mean, of but financial I think, reason he but did I think that. that was the actual end of the I think there was like it was the legal end there was of the something Beatles. something that happened in ni- like late 1971 and then there were several different things that actually put an end to the like the official end of the Beatles so if they worked in January of 1970 that's still within Beatle mm-hmm. world okay but Paul George and Ringo doing something in 95 well, first of all, there's no way they would have ever done such a thing. Because again, talk about pitchforks and boiling oil. <laughs> and yeah, there are other people who have done things, gotten together without members who have passed. But I think when it comes to the Beatles, what have we said many times over our time together? The, the Beatles, Beatles are, are the, the exception. exception. Perhaps a difference is that... John was brutally murdered. True. As opposed to dying of natural causes or of something like cancer. It's something that is, as hard as it may be, it's not senseless. And I think there's just a lot. I mean, you can tell anytime you see Paul performing here today in concert, the man is still hurting. Oh, yeah. The man will, he, Paul will never, ever get over yeah john's death but when he does something it's a happy it's a happy little tribute well you know? because because I mean, he got to say goodbye they to got, george they he had, closure, he had closure and also knowing because of george's spiritual beliefs that george had come to terms and had peace when it came to his fate yes and that i think helped both paul and ringo get through losing him yeah. Whereas with John, it was sudden, it was violent, and it was also right at a time when John had put out a brand new album and he was recording again. I mean, the, the night he was mm-hmm. murdered, he and Yoko were coming back from a recording session. Yep. I think it's just that nature makes it, it just, no. And I, I'm glad that such a thing never happened. I would bet that such a thing was never even considered. Hmm. That if Paul, George, and Ringo were to do something together, it would have been under their own names, or they may very well have done their own traveling Wilburys True. kind of thing, yeah. like call themselves something else. Or I bet you anything, if they ever had done such a thing, it totally would have been for charity. Oh, yeah. Like I can they totally would, see they that. would have done like just kind of a, hey, special thing and whatever. And I, I can't see them ever even trying to profit, but it would never have been under. Oh, the Oh, and in this rain. case, no, the Beatles were not the exception. I have, a, I have another exception, or maybe not an exception, but an, an example. The Monkees, they did three studio albums without at least one of their members who decided they didn't want to be part of it anymore. But after Davy Jones died, they put out two studio albums, making sure that they mm-hmm. had Davy's voice exactly. on it. Exactly. Even though they had done previous albums without at least one of the guys. Mm-hmm. They did, like for example, Changes and Pool It do not have all four members on it. Well, yeah. But once one of them died, suddenly they made sure but all again, four were that, on it. But also that was, I think, 
I don't. I I'd have to go back and look in the texts for the. Because fun for fact, all. Peter Tork actually does play on a track yeah. on both Present and Instant Replay. Well, yeah, <laughs> and that's kind of a different thing too because those last couple albums they were still under contract. I mean, yeah. I don't know how Peter got out of. He bought out. Oh, his he contract. did. Okay, yeah. so the other three were still under contract, and I guess Mike may have bought out so that he wouldn't be involved with changes. I mean, I know in yeah. I know in early 1970 he still had a few contractual obligations. Like, like he some still TV, had to do like TV, TV commercials things. and things. Yeah. But I mean, it, it's a different situation, and I don't think there's a lot of emotion. You know, you don't have the same emotion involved. Speaking of emotion, though, what was it you were saying about the video? Oh my. Which we should probably link in my, pardon me, this is my podcast, which I should link in the online bibliography at schnookpodcast.com. And if you have any love for the Beatles and you have not seen this video yet, you better have a hanky handy because you're going to need it. Just getting this out right now, there are fans who hate the video, but they by far are in the minority. There are far fewer people who hate the, the video than well, those who hate the I song. I mean, they're just wrong. <laughs> I'm sorry. They're just wrong because the video is, again, it has a great deal of respect. Mm-hmm. I think it's a gift for the fans. I really do. It's very emotional. You would have seen your husband crying if you had been home. What got you? What was the moment that got you? Right. I'm not even going to give a spoiler warning here because no, if no. you're a Beatles fan and you haven't seen it yet, too bad. You're going to be spoiled because <laughs> by the time this gets out, it will have been out for at least a week. Yeah. The moment when we see Ringo and Paul, modern day Ringo and Paul in the studio and they drop, they digitally insert George and John from one of the Hello Goodbye promo films. Oh my God. I, mean- I just... <sighs> I mean, actually, what got me even before that was in the very beginning, and there's like a photo of John looking at a a sunrise or a sunset. You can even, the way the photo is done, you can kind of see a little bit through one of the lenses of his glasses. And I I just thought, oh, oh boy, (laughs) we're in for it. But just the quality that went into it, how they were able to insert vintage footage but make it look completely natural to make it look like they were actually there and even like i didn't notice this until you pointed out how like you could like when john is next to paul you can see the shadow of his arm on paul yeah (laughs) it's just so beautifully done yeah and uh there's another moment that if i had been standing up i would have fallen over i think because it just knocked me out. What? Now, I never once thought that Giles Martin resembled his father at all. He has the same nose, I always thought, but that's about it. There's a shot of Giles behind the console. The way he's sitting and the mm-hmm. way he's kind of angled, it's it like, was like looking at his father. Yep. I'm like, oh my God, that's Sir George right there. I mean, he, yep. it was clearly Giles. Yeah, yeah. But I'm thinking, okay, yeah, he definitely looks like his dad. And I love the choice of having a lot of fun footage, like a lot of the footage from uh, the Hello Goodbye video, where they're being silly and dancing around and things like that. Because it's almost like the song itself is kind of moody and even a little gloomy. And it's like that kind of tempers it. It kind of brings a little more of the like, 
the beetle joy into it yeah. so that you're not wallowing in this pit of despair. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And oh, I got to say this too. Up to the moment that video was posted, people were saying, oh, George isn't on this. George isn't on this. Because you know, it was not George playing the slide guitar. It was Paul. But it had been said, no, George is on it. They used vintage recording from the, vintage. I'm saying it's only the nineties. They're using recordings from when they first attempted it. They absolutely did. I think Ringo's drums were new. The piano was new. And some of the vocals were new, but not all of them. George was playing an acoustic guitar. The video shows Paul and George together overdubbing acoustic guitar. Mm -hmm. Their fingers are changing chords as the chords are changing. Paul is either mouthing or singing along with the words. They are clearly overdubbing yeah, onto now and them. they made that clear that George's guitar is on there. So yeah, that is your proof that George was on the recording. So shut up, everybody. Yeah. If you didn't already. But it's... um. Near the end, when it kind of starts to wind back, starting with the photo from August 22nd, 1969, mm -hmm. like their last actual Beatle photo shoot. Yep. And then it goes back and back and back to a clip from The Cavern, which I believe, if I read correctly, came from Pete Best. Yeah. Where they colorized it, but then it goes to black and white, and then it goes to childhood photos yep and then for a moment those photos fade out and you just see the girls in the balcony mm. screaming well you also had that a little bit with uh the clip of them walking out on the field at a uh, candle was it candlestick or shay shay again that little acknowledgement that none of this would have ever happened if it weren't for all of you <laughs> the beatles would not have been what they were if it weren't for millions of screaming girls and screaming boys too. <laughs> but well, it's yeah. just it's just like I think they just wanted to acknowledge that, like, thank you. Thank you, everybody. And then they bow. Oh yeah, that last bit from when they were doing She Loves You in a Hard Day's Night. Yeah. yeah. And I feel that showing the bow in their Beatles suits, that was a little thank you to Brian Epstein. Oh, yeah. Because, again, none of this ever would have happened if it weren't for Brian Epstein. Yep. How he, like, got them to the toppermost of the poppermost. Indeed. All of that is what really got to me, too. Just the gratitude. And just, I think they were thankful that they could take this opportunity to really say thank you. And really, that video made me truly enjoy the song. Oh, it, it definitely it really helped, helped me as well. Having all of that, those visuals. And there were, I think there's some little Easter eggs in there too. How like when George, one of the shots of George circa 1995 in Paul's home studio. Mm -hmm. And behind him is the uh, bass drum head from Magical Mystery Tour. Yeah. And in the beginning the close-up of Paul's Hoffner, where you see oh. where the veneer is worn yep. off right yep. under the strings. Yep. And they have a quick shot of the uh, the Hoffner name. That cheap bass, look at where it got him. I still can't believe it's in one piece. Like, how <laughs> anybody listening, if you've never picked up a Hoffner product, they're kind of flimsy. Like, yeah, it feels and, like... And when you consider that thing probably got thrown, dropped... 
slept on, beer spilled yeah, on like it. We, we have a friend who has a Hofner bass, not the violin bass, but another one that kind of looks like that. I picked it up once and I felt, I was like, oh God, am I going to break this? Because it felt like yeah, cardboard. And, and how during that period of time when uh, Paul like would toss it to oh, God. one of his roadies and he was asked like, what would happen if like the roadie dropped it? And he'd be like, oh, I'd just be out 50 quid or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> Meanwhile, Lloyd's of London goes out of business. <laughs> But I'm thinking, how did that thing last so long? That took a beating for decades. Because. But Willie Nelson's guitar, which I'm sure he took good care of, Trigger looks like Swiss cheese. Because <laughs> nothing is Beatles. <laughs> but they know there are things the fans know chapter and verse. Like <laughs> Peter Jackson himself is a lifelong Beatles fan and mm-hmm. probably for all his accomplishments, probably pinches himself every day that he got to work on these projects with the Beatles. Yeah. And the other thing that he worked on that I do want to talk about, I know you're probably not going to have a lot to say at all about this because I did want to address this. The B-side of Now and Then was the single version of Love Me Do on Parlophone recorded on September 4th, 1962 with just the four Beatles, Ringo, Paul, John, and George. It was also treated to the Peter Jackson technology to make it a true stereo recording, something that was previously not possible to do. The artificial intelligence software was able to be taught how to recognize the drums, how to recognize the bass, how to recognize Paul's voice, John's voice, etc. And when you listen to it, yeah, it really is in stereo. It's a very tight mix, though. There's no full separation. On the left side, you're going to hear Paul's bass booming out with a little leakage over to the right. I think you hear John's harmonica on the left with leakage on the right. On the right, you're going to hear John's guitar leaking onto the left. You're going to hear the hand claps during the uh, instrumental break leaking onto the left. And you're going to hear the vocals and the drums centered. And it actually sounds decent. But as excited as I was to finally hear love me do in fact that version of love me do never even got a fake stereo mix now the way that peter jackson's software worked for now and then is there were only two things that it had to recognize it had to recognize a piano it had to recognize john the problem with love me do is you have so much on one single channel of sound you have guitar bass guitar drums harmonica john lennon voice Paul McCartney voice. So six things that it had to try to separate. I'm betting that Peter Jackson wasn't able to get a perfectly clean separation of all six of those elements. And so that might be why there's a little bit of leakage, or maybe they just didn't want it to be too separated. Either way, I don't know. But as I listened to it, I'm like, okay, this is cool, but I'm not really overwhelmed. But then I realized something. And what was that realization? It was just love me do. Oh, <laughs> just how now and then isn't the greatest John Lennon song yeah. ever. Love Me Do isn't the most exciting well, it's very song. Moon in June. It, it really is. And there's not much to it. It's basic. I, I will say this compared to the re-recording they did a week later with Andy White on drums and Ringo and tambourine. I love the original Ringo. It has a little bit more oomph to it, I think. Well, because Ringo was a very oomph drummer and still is. Yeah, and the tambourine, I think, just got in the way. Of course, like Ringo said that when he recorded his ta- his tambourine part for Love Me Do, he was very bitter about having to do that. So he's like, yeah, <laughs> well, I'm going to play this thing as loud as I can. I would think so. <laughs> 
But I'm glad that is now out, that there's now a true stereo version of Love Me Do. And I am so freaking excited about finally getting the possibility of a stereo She Loves You, which is going to be on the uh, reworked Red album, 1962 to 1963. I fear that it might suffer from the same thing that I believe Love Me Do might suffer from, because (laughs) just like with Love Me Do, there is no multi-track available for She Loves You. You have one channel available that has John and Paul singing with all their instruments, and they're louder than on Love Me Do. So I'm wondering if uh, the MAL software might have had trouble kind of separating the parts from that, but we'll see. Well, I mean, yeah, because you're dealing with what? Three track tech? Did they have three? They, they tracks were only using two tracks. Yeah, back then. I mean, <laughs> if they only... had the original two tracks, it might be a different story. But now they, but no, once they mastered that, mm-hmm. that because yeah. that was before EMI put it established their policy of okay, when we record now, we're going to save the yeah. multi tracks. Yeah. So 1963, it's they started only going to be so good. Yeah. But it's still the Beatles. It's still the Beatles. Oh. So shut up and enjoy it. Which I hope I do. <laughs> Anything further that we should mention about this whole project? No, I think, we, project. I think we got it. It's overwhelming and it's emotional and it's been a lot in the past couple yeah, of days. It really has been. Yeah, the artwork, the front cover artwork for now and then has gotten a lot of flack and I really don't blame people. There's nothing exciting about it. The back cover is this clock. What else can I say about it? that has potential Easter eggs in it pointing to the release date and everything. And there is a really fascinating thing that Olivia Harrison, George's widow, said that I, th- I think they have a clock that either that is actually the clock pictured or looks like the clock pictured. I don't remember. And um, she was looking at that clock one day and got a call from, I think, Paul, who said, we want to record this yeah. now and then thing. And the clock actually has the words now and then yeah. on it. And she was kind of like, Wah. She thought that that was a sign from George that <laughs> yep. it was okay to do it. Yep. I might have gotten that a little bit mixed up, so I apologize to uh, anybody who might think, wait, what are you talking about? But, <laughs> wow. At first I was meh about now and then when I heard it, but now I really like it. I like that it's there. I love that it's there. Greatest Beatles track, not by far. Not by far. But I'm glad we have it. Agreed. I should point out, by the way, that a lot of diehard Beatles fans are probably yelling at their playback devices over the implication about how the folks at EMI did not keep the session tapes, the multi-tracks for She Loves You, and it was before EMI's policy of keeping session tapes. It was not recorded before that policy. It was actually recorded after it. The problem is the original session tapes and multi-tracks for She Loves You are missing. They're probably stolen. So that's why they're not there. That's why an artificial intelligence-based stereo mix had to be made of She Loves You, which, by the way, my previously mentioned guess that it would be a tight stereo mix like with Love Me Do is correct. There's definitely stereo separation, but it's a very narrow separation. And I have since gotten the new versions of the Red and Blue albums with the additional tracks and everything. And um, a couple of comments. Number one, Not a fan of eight days a week. Uh, The remix doesn't have any bass in it, practically. Even after turning the bass all the way up on my receiver, I could still barely hear it. So, 
Try again, Giles. Try. Come on. A Hard Day's Night sounds stunning. When Lisa walked into the room when I was playing We Can Work It Out off the new Red album, she stood frozen in her tracks. She said, wow. I don't agree with many fans' assertion that on the new She Loves You stereo mix, the vocals are distorted. I listened to it multiple times. I can't really tell, or at least maybe they are, but they're no more distorted than they are in all the previous mono versions. Also, a lot of fans are screaming and wanting to practically lynch Giles Martin for the uh, I Am The Walrus remix, saying, oh, the second half is nothing but noise. You can't even hear the music. You people are full of it. You're full of it. There's nothing really wrong about it. There is a part in which the sound effects and radio broadcast signal and everything kind of overtake everything, but that's only for a few seconds. Get a grip, people. The real problem with the new I Am The Walrus remix is that for a good portion of the second half, you can't really hear the string section. It's really, really buried. I didn't like that, but I did overall like the mix. Not my go-to I Am The Walrus mix. If I'm going to listen specifically to I Am The Walrus, I'm probably going to listen to the one that's on the Love album, or maybe one that, uh, somebody in the collector's circles did as a kind of a desktop project. There are a couple of those going out there that sound really, really good. Oh, and speaking of uh, Beatles fans tearing their hair out, a couple of other clarifications or corrections I should make. Um, First of all, you can still order, at least as of this recording, you can still order versions of the Now and Then single on the Beatles official website, just not every one of them. The Spotify edition 10-inch record is long gone, and good luck finding one of those for under three digits. <laughs> and the Target edition red 12-inch, unfortunately, I think is also gone. I really wish I would have bought those when I could have. I think the blue vinyl is also gone. That's the one that I got. There's also the blue-white marble vinyl. Um, that is still available, as is the clear colorless vinyl. Uh, Spoiler, I have both of those that I just mentioned, and I think those are still available along with the black vinyl version, the cassette single version, and the CD single version. Also, (laughs) I mentioned Sean Ono Lennon using a Apple II Plus. I don't know where I got that from. I know where I got that from. I just got confused. It's because I saw a picture of him playing Pac-Man on a computer, but it was actually an Atari 400 not an Apple II Plus. Might he have had an Apple II Plus? He might have. I don't know. Uh, I don't even know if that Atari 400 was actually his or if he was just using someone else's, to be quite honest. And by the way, the reason that we were both saying Sean Ono Lennon is that Sean recently said that he prefers going by both last names because in his mind, they are both his last names. So I will respect that. But uh, yeah, I really do like... Oh, 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 finally... Finally, we Beatles fans got what we have been clamoring for for years. We have a version of Dear Prudence that has a clean start. It doesn't have the jet engine from back in the USSR. Thank you, Giles and company. Thank you. Anyway, (laughs) that's the end of uh, chapter 46. And uh, thank you for coming back after such a long absence for me. Hopefully it won't be uh, that much longer again before the next chapter. But uh, thank you very much as usual to my wonderful wife, Lisa, who, uh, of course, participated in this particular episode. And thank you to you for listening. 
As you may have heard, there were some uh, copyrighted bits of sound in this podcast, and um, said copyrighted bits of sound are used for demonstration and critique and all that good stuff. Infringement is not intended. Said bits of copyrighted material belong to their respective copyright holders. And don't forget, you can follow me on Twitter at Schnook Podcast, or whatever it's called now. I'm just going to keep calling it Twitter, okay? Uh, you can follow me on Instagram if you want, but I'm going to confess I have not uh, logged into Instagram in a long, long time because I just keep forgetting about it. Uh, I think my Mastodon server no longer exists, so I'm trying to find a way around there, but I don't know. I don't know, but uh, you can go to the website, which is schnookpodcast.com, and that's where you'll find all the episodes you can listen to. Uh, I'm going to put in a feature there sometime where you can uh, pull down a category and it'll show up every episode that fits in that category. Like, say, if you want to hear more Beatles stuff, there'll be a drop down for that sometime. It's not there as of the date I'm recording this, but I'll try to get it up there as soon as possible. But thank you again for listening, everybody. If you want to email me, by the way, autobio at schnookpodcast.com. I will be back with um, chapter 47, hopefully soon, hopefully next month. And until then, just remember, the good goes around. And as God is my witness, the phrase is, as God is my witness not as God as my witness. Gobble, gobble. Gobble.